Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Photographer Randall Ford, who specializes in conceptual portraiture and advertising work, just released a gorgeous book on animals titled The Animal Kingdom, A Collection of Portraits. After consistently getting jobs photographing animals for a time, the work eventually tipped over into a personal project that would take him to many locations and studios to capture a large variety of 150 different mammals and birds. He describes his love of photography as a kind of obsession that started in high school and grew into college even though he ended up studying business. After moving to Austin, he worked as an assistant and second shooter but soon found himself wanting to go out on his own. Since that time, he has built a successful career with advertising, portrait work, and directing, and is now venturing into the fine art world with his arresting studio images of animals. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm excited to share it and help spread the word about his new book. We talk about the book, but also the balance between being an artist and running a business, and he shares some bullet points and recommendations for aspiring artists towards the end. Have a listen, share some feedback, and be sure to check out his work at randallford.com. That's R-A-N-D-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. Here's Randall. Well, Randall, thanks for being on my show. Thanks for having me. So we're here because you just released your first book, The Animal Kingdom. It's a beautiful collection of portraits of uh, a huge variety of animals all shot in a studio. But maybe just for anyone that might not be familiar with you. Maybe you could just kind of describe your work as a photographer or who you are, you know? Sure, sure. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas and took a black and white photography class uh, in high school and fell in love with that. And then after that, I went to Texas A&M University and kind of a couple years after being at Texas A&M, I started shooting for the school newspaper. That's when I kind of really fell in love with photography hard mm-hmm. and started shooting for the school newspaper. And I shot everything from you know, features to sports to portraits to whatever I could shoot. I also did kind of some freelance work for other student publications. And then I started to do some freelance work for the local newspaper in Bryan College Station, which was the Eagle. And along the way at Texas A&M, I got a business degree as well, because there was no such thing as a photography degree at A&M. There still isn't. (laughs) Uh, They don't exactly churn out creatives. Um, Nothing against my alma mater, which I'm very proud to be an Aggie. um, And I think in the end, it probably did help you. And I'm sure we're going to touch on that. 
at some point. It, it, yeah, it definitely did. Um, just being almost being kind of forced to find your own vision as a photographer and artist versus going to photography school and, you know, learning the history of photography and learning from your professors and whatnot. And then having all these peers around you, that are all shooting as well. So mm -hmm. it, I was kind of forced to become my own photographer. Cause I just, there just weren't that many around, you know, and I sought out inspiration from, you know, publications like Texas monthly and photographers like Dan winners, you know, and the classic photographers like Richard Avedon and Irving Penn. And, um, yeah, I know you mentioned in, in another interview, mm -hmm. seeing Richard's work at, a museum, I yeah. think, in Fort Worth, and that he had a huge effect on you, right? Yeah, and that was probably that was probably shortly after I had graduated from Texas A and M and was really considering pursuing photography as a career. And then Richard Avedon's In the American West was on display at the Amon Carter in Fort Worth, and I um, was lucky enough to go see that in person and seeing these prints that are like, I mean, they had to have been five feet tall at least. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, probably larger than life. Um, seeing those in person was just mind blowing to me, and it's like just gave me chills and and potentially, I'm sure, kind of maybe the subconsciously the inspiration for your Animal Kingdom work. It, it definitely did, yeah. And I mean, portraiture is my kind of my my first love of photography. When I saw the simplicity of Avedon's work um, in person, I was like, oh, this is you know, it's hugely inspiring, and I think it it hugely shaped how I became as a photographer. Shortly after graduating, I, um, I moved to Austin to work for another photographer, mm -hmm. uh, Jack Hollingsworth. Did that for a little while, and um, I was able to get lots of great experience working with Jack. And Had you started shooting in a studio yet with like controlled lighting? Because it sounded like you were doing a lot of photojournalism before. I, yeah, you know, it's funny. At A&M, I was doing a lot of photojournalism, but I did pick up some uh, Alien Bees uh, okay. strobes, yeah. which are flashes for anyone that's listening that's not a photographer. <laughs> um, some Alien Bees or white lightning uh, flashes and strobes. And those allowed me to experiment with studio controlled lighting and modifiers and portraiture uh, in a way that I really didn't as a photojournalist. Yeah. So um, it sounds like you were just hungry to learn. Oh, like I was so, I was so obsessed. I was so, I mean, I, I, I was just, yeah, I was, I was very hungry. That's a perfect <laughs> to way to learn. put it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and I think I was so hungry to learn because I didn't go to school to become a photographer. Yeah. Um, ah. they didn't have it there. So I was like, and this was before you could Google anything and everything and find out everything online. I mean, you could, I could still do some research, but yeah. you couldn't find out everything. And so I just, a lot of it was experimentation and just like digging, you know, into piles wherever you could and to extract, you know, information and what. Not. I just was, you know, head over heels in love with photography. Yeah. Were you also enjoying learning about business at the same time? Did you kind of see like, wow, this is really going to help me in my photography business in the future? Or? Definitely. You know, towards the end of my school schooling at A&M, sort of my track within the business school was small business management and entrepreneurship. Mm, and so perfect. I was, yeah, totally. <laughs> and so I was taking some of those classes and shooting and really thinking about becoming a photographer. And I started to just kind of intermix these two worlds of art and commerce. Yeah. And all of a sudden I started to really enjoy my business classes way more because ah. I was applying, I was like, Oh, as a photographer, I can use these business concepts over here, you know, to help launch my career, or, yeah. you know, move forward as a, as a photographer and artist. So I wonder how rare that is though. Like if someone's going to business school, are they also developing 
kind of their own personal brand business at the same time? Or are they just waiting till they get out of college and going to work for someone else or something? You know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it was, it was definitely a very unique situation that I was in, you know, already really being in love with photography, but so far into a major that I, I wasn't going to change. Yeah. So it was definitely a unique position and it was also pre social media. So it was pre like, I mean, now with Instagram, the idea of your personal brand is like, I mean, it's like everybody is like yeah, aware of brand. that. <laughs> everybody is a brand and it. So this was all kind of pre social media, which mm-hmm. is, which I think is interesting. So I, after I moved to Austin, I, I worked with Jack and then I did that for a little, little while, less than a year. And then I branched out and started doing my own thing. And mm-hmm. my sort of kind of what I wanted to be as a photographer, because there's so many different genres. There's so many, you know, you can be yeah. a fine artist, you can be a wedding photographer, an advertising photographer. So I knew that I wanted to be an advertising photographer with a specialty in conceptual portrait work. Mm-hmm. I've always said that, you know, because I knew kind of what I wanted to get out of photography, that I was able to accomplish it a lot faster and I was able to pursue it in a more smooth fashion. Yeah. Um, how did you settle on that? Like, how did you have such clarity around what, what you wanted to do? You know, in, in some ways, kind of the stars align and I got lucky in just by some of the people that I was connected with early in my career. So, um, I had a extended relative that was an account director at the Richards group in Dallas. And he hooked me up with some meetings with some creative directors mm. there that I could sort of discuss photography with. And there was a couple other people at the Richards group that were able to kind of give me a sense of what it's like to be an advertising photographer. Mm -hmm. Because back then, all this information that we have access to at our fingertips now was harder to to get a hold of. And so it was hard to know what it looks like to be an advertising photographer. And a lot of advertising photographers, they weren't that open about like telling you like, what's, what's this like? So I had to almost kind of extract it from like other sources. Yeah, that's smart. And so, and then my uncle introduced me to the Butler brothers in Austin, yeah. which um, they're a, a, a small ad, ad agency. And both Marty and Adam became mentors to me and helped me kind of get a sense of what it's like to be an advertising photographer and whatnot. So, and then I, you know, I had always followed Texas Monthly's work and the photography in there. So a combination of all that. And then Towards the end of college, my mom gave me a book, Michael O'Brien's uh, Face of Texas. Mm-hmm. And the portrait work in there, I just absolutely loved. And it really struck a chord with me. And so that as well kind of gave me some kind of direction. How does your grandfather, Creed Ford Sr., fit in as far as photography goes? Good question. So when I was in, when I was taking that black and white photography class as a junior in high school, my grandfather lent me his uh, Nikon film camera to mm. use and to learn with. <laughs> nice. And he had always loved photography. And, you know, that generation, it, it was more, um, that was a serious hobby that you had to really learn and you had to not to say that photography now is not a serious hobby, but you know, yeah. you know, you, you had to have a dark room and you had to really know photography and film and yeah. the equipment and the exposure and all that. Anyway, so he taught me, I took the camera over to his, after I'd started the class, I took the camera, we had some lessons on like depth of field and all that. So I took the camera over to him and uh, to his house and we kind of experimented with learning about depth of field and a little bit about lighting and just experimentation. And I think experimentation is the best way to learn something like photography or art or design and define your own voice. So he helped me just kind of learn some of the fundamentals, but has always been proud that I pursued this as a career and whatnot. Yeah. Very nice. 
And I'm sure that gave you guys a chance to become closer or kind of have that kind of a connection. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And he's, he's, he also was an insurance sales, salesperson. So he always had kind of a business background as well, you know, and I, I have a lot of other kind of family members that are in this kind of entrepreneurial realm. Mm. And that probably shaped some of my direction being a photographer and also a business person. Yeah. It seemed like a viable path because right. other people around you were doing it. Yeah, exactly. Did you learn anything in particular from working with Jack when you first moved to Austin? Do you remember anything? Oh, for sure. Oh, I learned lots. Um, so Jack Hollingsworth, he was doing, at the time he was doing a royalty-free st- lifestyle stock photography. Mm-hmm. So he was shooting these big libraries and volumes of images. And he hired me as a second assistant, but also, uh, I mean, as an assistant, but also a second shooter. And I was a ho- absolutely ho- horrible assistant. And so much <laughs> that I even, I, these two things, I literally, I dropped a brand new camera <laughs> <laughs> that he got. And I, 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 I think this is true. I literally, I think I wiped an entire hard drive of a shoot clean. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he was just the coolest guy to work for ever. He, he was just like, you know, Zen. You yeah. Know. Okay. But I, what was so great about working with him is that I shot so much as well. Mm-hmm. And so even though I was a bad assistant, I was shooting with him all the time. That's, I think, how any artist finds their vision and finds who they are as an artist is by just creating. So I was, even though I was doing it for somebody else, I was still creating artwork all the time. And that helped me tremendously, you know, in accelerating my career as a photographer and finding my voice as an artist. How did he model being a photographer or being a business person to you that you've maybe taken away? Well, he was both uh, a great business person and a great photographer. Um, because what he was doing was was stock photography, a lot of it at least was self-initiated. Like he had to go out and he had to come up with the concepts. And I know he worked with some editors as well, but he had to go out and he had to go shoot these big li- libraries of images. And I, I think st- stock photographers have to have a tremendous amount of discipline to go out and, and shoot these big libraries of work. Whereas an advertising photographer, you know, is typically having a carrot dangled in front of them. Yeah. You know, so it's easier to just go out and shoot something when someone's saying, Hey, I need you to go shoot this. Here's what I'm going to pay you, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a risk in that because you don't know for sure if anyone's going to care about your images, right? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the flip side, it does translate, you know, that self-discipline translate to fine art photography as well. Because oh, yeah. for, the, for a large part being, you know, fi- a fine artist, you're creating the work before it's being sold. And that was kind of what stock photography was actually, which, you know, you typically wouldn't compare fine art with stock photography, but this creating work before it's being sold is something like you're really taking a leap of faith and you're really putting yourself out there into the world. And and it can be, it can be kind of a, you know, a scary thing and can be kind of, you know, it's easy to kind of go into a world of self-doubt and whatnot. And you're creating the whole thing from scratch. You're conceptualizing it. You're, Hiring talent and finding locations. And, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a, you know, with the book, with all these animal portraits that I did, it was, I mean, there's some of the work was commissioned in there, but most of it was self-initiated. And I was working with some assistants and producers that helped me kind of find a lot of these animals, but a lot of it was self-initiated. Like, yeah. I'm going to go photograph this animal. What I'm shooting, we may come away with something great and we may not. Yeah. It was interesting looking through the book and seeing how you have the frame numbers in the bottom right of each photo. And it's like most of them are in like the 80s or 90s. I mean, it's yeah. not a lot of shots per animal. No. You know? and, and it kind of depend on was dependent on per animal too. Like some of the animals, you know, you could shoot 300 frames of, but most of them, 
it was less than a hundred. Some of it was probably less than 30 or 20 yeah. even. Uh, I mean, some of the animals that I photographed, I, I walked away. I was like, I might not have a picture from that yeah. photo shoot. But I, ironically, two of those were ones that I had walked away with some of my favorite work. So the black oh, yeah. wolf on black, that was one of the hardest animals to photograph. You know, I, I probably only got 20 or 30 shots out of that session, but that, that single photograph that I got was one of my favorites. And then the other one was this young lion that I photographed that has a mohawk because yeah. um, his mane was just growing in. He was like a year old. I mean, I literally kept, there was like two, two usable images in there that were like worth, worth anything, worth a flip or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was, that's all it's, you know, sometimes as a, as a photographer, like all you need is one image mm-hmm. and we yeah. got, it's something we joke about, you know, on set when I'm doing commission work is, you know, we shoot. 500 pictures of something and they're only going to use one picture. It's like, we just need one from this set, from this setup. Yeah. I'm sure back in the days when people shot film more, you weren't shooting as much. No. Probably. Yeah. You, you were more selective. More deliberate. And, yeah. I'm more intentional. Exactly. So I'm wondering now, so you work for Jack and then you kind of branched out on your own and then what happened? Yeah. So branching out on my own was, um, it was certainly a leap of faith, but I was, I was really itching to get out and mm. do it on my, on my own and not, be working for somebody. What that looked like was, you know, shooting a lot of stuff from my portfolio. It was me going to agencies with my portfolio and showcasing my work to them and, mm-hmm. you know, marketing myself um, to advertising agencies. Uh, most of that was within the world of Austin to start with and Dallas a little bit. So a lot of it was just getting my name out there and marketing myself. And I even remember early in my career when I sent out, I did a small promo piece and, uh, but it was pretty substantial. It was like a little booklet. And I actually FedExed that to advertising agencies in Austin and Dallas mm-hmm. with like little handwritten notes saying, Hey, I'd love to work with you sometime. Here's, here's my, yeah. here's a new project that I just yeah. finished. So, uh, it was definitely a lot of, um, really kind of obsessive hard work to put myself out there and really like pursue this as a career. That's one thing that really impresses me about you is how professional you are. I mean, you sent me a copy of your new book with a handwritten note on, you know, a paper specifically <laughs> about the animal kingdom project. And when I got that, I was like, wow, this guy is on the ball. Here. Oh, thank like, you. He is really, you know, I don't know. I just really respect that. I really appreciate that. And it's like, I strive to be more professional myself and to stand out, uh-huh. you know, from everyone else uh, in that way. And it just seems like, I don't know. I got mad respect for that. Well, thank you. You know, I, I've, part of that's kind of a little bit of OCD, okay. <laughs> but part of it's also, you know, just, I, I'm a big believer that if you do, like, if you do the little things really well, then that equals a lot that adds up to a lot. Yeah. Um, going back to Richard Avedon's in the American West. I mean, how many people have photographed people on white seamless, mm-hmm. but he did it so well and so professional and just everything was dialed in about that work. And of course, a lot of the subject matter was really interesting and, you know, a a departure from his fashion work, but it was simplicity done exceptionally well. And that makes me think about being a portrait photographer. You really have to love people and you have to know how to connect with them and you have to have the intuition to kind of feel out the moments and get the shot, you know, like, tell me how you developed that. I mean, has that always been there too? It was definitely something that had to be fostered. And yeah, when I look back, so I've always loved portraiture. I've loved the idea of portraiture. When I was in college, I used to photograph my friends, you know, like all dressed up for some like crazy Halloween party or like I would just kind of photograph any, I had a friend that was in the core at A&M and so we would, and he had a real chiseled face and, you know, we did these kind of military like photos and portraits, I mean, and so I would 
take portraits of all my friends and my family and kind of anyone that would get in front of the camera. And so that was kind of the start of that idea of, because a portrait, when you're creating a portrait of somebody, you're really a director in a lot of regards. You're, you're kind of directing them, you know, for that moment that you're trying to mm-hmm. capture, you know, that came with, you know, just a ton of practice and just kind of also putting myself out there. I mean, I remember when I first came to Austin, I would just like, I remember going to like some tattoo parlor and asking some dude if I could just take his portrait. And yeah. it was, you know, it was kind of scary, but you just put yourself out there and ask if you can create someone's portrait. Yeah. And, um, it's like taking that risk and risking rejection and you just kind of do that sure. over and over again. And, and all of a sudden you just, yeah, you, you yeah. After doing that so many times you get, it becomes a natural thing. It becomes something, a much easier thing to do. And now the idea of, you know, directing a subject and working with them in front of the camera, I just absolutely love. Um, Mm. I love working with people and I love, you know, directing someone, whether it's for, you know, a portrait or a commercial or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, which is, which is ironic that this whole book of yeah, animals right. that I did, you, <laughs> you, you can't direct these animals like you can people. Um, and so that was, that was a really an interesting exercise in relinquishing control and also experimentation of being an observer, but also kind of fostering a portrait. That process was, was a lot of getting an animal in the right situation underneath the right lighting and sort of <laughs> hoping for the best, yeah. but also being prepared to keep shooting, you know, throughout this session because, you know, you never kind of know when one of these animals will kind of give you that look that the person would give you if you just directed them to give you that mm-hmm. look. So it was definitely an interesting exercise in creativity and departure from, you know, a, a human portrait subject. Yeah. I, I mean, I've photographed a fair share of people myself and it's... You really have to, I mean, sometimes it feels like a standoff and people will just stand there and they're waiting for you to kind of direct and control the situation yeah. and give them something. And it really takes, you really have to like bring it out of yourself. You, you have do. to really yeah. muster something in you to yeah. kind of like make decisions and be decisive and right. kind of use maybe you only have five minutes with someone. You have to right. figure out a way, how am I going to get this shot of this yeah. person? For sure. And, you know, I mean, you know how it is. Like when you're on the other side of that camera, I mean, it can be very, very uncomfortable. Every time I'm on the other side of the camera and someone's taking my picture, I mean, it's very uncomfortable. (laughs) That is so funny. (laughs) And, you know, uh, you almost, it's funny because you have to like think about it from that person's perspective, especially if they're not a model or an actor. Yeah. It's like this person is like, this is a way uncomfortable situation for them. Mm -hmm. So the more that you can like get them to be comfortable in front of the camera, the better, and the more natural that portrait session will will come out. I even a lot of times, like on ad shoots, I'll I'll be working with a, or I'll just be talking with a subject, whether it's an actor or a, you know a real a real model or whatever. I'll be talking with them before they even step foot on set or in front of the camera, because mm-hmm. I want the, I want to develop a rapport with them. I want them to get to know me and vice versa. And, you know, if you can develop some sort of rapport and comfortable conversation with each other, then once you get in front of the camera, they, they know you and they know you, they, it's almost like they know your camera as well. They, yeah. there's this sense of like comfort and trust um, and trust. Trust is the perfect word for it. There's yeah. a sense of trust, you know, in, in the process and in you as a director. I'm wondering if shooting all these animals in any way could make you a better portrait photographer in general. Like, I don't know. Have you 
have you noticed any difference now shooting people? Like, is there anything different about it? I don't know. I just, I, I just yeah, I think so. Um, it's interesting because that idea of relinquishing control and yes. letting your subject perform a little bit is something that I, I try to do now a little bit more. I try oh. to see, like, if you can just step back and let your subject perform once you've given them some direction and once they're, once they've become comfortable and let them kind of be themselves for a little bit, that's when you maybe can capture some of these really nice unexpected moments that you're not trying to, to contrive. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It almost reminds me of like an interview technique where, you know, you might ask someone a question and they'll answer it. A lot of times as the interviewer, you're trying to be kind and accommodating with the person and you might just, you know, right after their answer, you might fill that in with another question because it makes, it doesn't put them on the spot. They're not just like sitting there in the right. in the headlights. <laughs> right. But this interview technique, and I'm not necessarily going to use this on you, but, um, <laughs> where you just wait, uh-huh. you just let a little silence in there. And then sometimes the person will keep talking and they'll right. come up with something even more amazing right. that it, you wouldn't have gotten if you just interrupted them because you thought you were being nice yeah. and not letting them sit there and, and kind of be uncomfortable. That's, so. that's, that's exactly, very that, similar. It's exactly what it is. It's yeah. exactly what's happening in that process is you're kind of stepping away and letting them relax and, and, and maybe even take control for a minute. Like, yeah. like here you drive for a second. And you had to do that 100% with the animals. <laughs> totally. I mean, it's, you know, uh, yes and no. I mean, I'm also working with, with trainers uh, as well, trainers or the owners of the animals. Yeah. And some of the animals, you know, similar to a trained dog can, you know, can stay put or maybe they hear a certain word and they cock their head or maybe their chin goes up. And, you know, these little things that animals do can sometimes help personify them in ways that mm-hmm. they're normally not, not seen. So I'm sure, I mean, after shooting all these animals, you must have a different kind of love for animals than you did probably before you started. Oh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and I've also come to admire animals that I didn't know as well before this project. Yeah. Um, For example, until I got into the thick of this animal portrait project, I hadn't photographed horses very often and I hadn't been around them that much. And being around these beautiful horses that I photographed for the book, I have just a whole nother level of just respect and admiration for them and how they've been part of civilization for so long. And with the horses, there was like this, I just felt like they had this sense of intuition Mm. um, about the person that they were with that I didn't get from a lot of the other animals um, that I thought was really, really beautiful. From a technical perspective, photographing horses was kind of a challenge as well because they've got this like long blocky head you know, mm-hmm. and it just, it just, it wasn't close to a human portrait. And so I had to kind of readjust my thinking on how do you create a portrait of this horse that feels true to the horse and beautiful, you know, from a, from a perspective of what this animal naturally looks like, but also from a perspective on how do you create a portrait that speaks to the audience as well. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that process was a lot of exploration and just learning and, uh, testing and kind of figuring that out. Whereas like some of the other animals, even like a tiger, like the tiger on the cover of the book, that was a, a more intuitive portrait to create and to humanize because they have, you know, their eyes are closer together. Their nose is more, all their features are closer together that we're like, like we're used to seeing yeah. in our human selves than the horses that are all just, just pulled apart. And this kind of the genesis of the whole project was shooting dairy cows Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was. So 
gosh, almost 10 years ago, uh, DJ Stout of Pentagram Design here in Austin, he hired me to photograph like 12 portraits of dairy cows for this magazine redesign that he was doing. And he came to me and he said, hey, because I was doing a lot of portraits of people at the time. And he said, hey, do you think you can create portraits of, of cows like you've <laughs> created portraits of people? And I hadn't photographed dogs or cats or anything. And I was like, well, sure, let's try. It turned out to be a really, well, first it turned out to be the inception of this project, but it was also such an interesting series of portraits because, I mean, really out of all the animals in this book, some of the, the ones that have been glamorized or beautified or heroicized or created that have had a portrait created of them are, you know, lions and tigers and elephants and, you know, these exotic animals or exotic birds, but nobody really thinks to photograph portraits of cows. Right. I guess except Chick-fil-A, but <laughs> but this idea of, of heroicizing or beautifying a cow was a really original one, mm-hmm. I, I thought, and it really struck a chord with, with my audience at the time, and it kind of led me to kind of pursue this, animal, this idea of creating an animal, a portrait of an animal. And then after you, after that, I think you've said that you started getting more work shooting cows and then maybe more animals. I'm wondering when when was there like the genesis of the idea for the book or the kind of the tipping point to like, oh, this is actually a whole project. This is right. a whole body of right. work. Yeah, it was it was interesting. After putting the these kind of very kind of artful portraits of cows out there, I was amazed at <laughs> how much advertising cow photography there was that kind of came out <laughs> like of the whole world. It was, it was, it was kind of crazy. Um, and then that slowly led to like, you know, uh, you know, some dog and cat work and some horse work and some, some work with some more exotic animals. But to answer your question, after I have photographed these dogs and cats for this kind of big, it was one of these brands that does, you know, like pet food and yeah. s- snacks and whatnot. I photographed, a bunch of animals, like three days in a studio in LA. And at the end of that shoot, I was like, you know what? I really, I had been just dying to photograph some predators. Some Specifically, I wanted to do a lion, tiger, and a bear, the Wizard of Oz trifecta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I worked with a trainer in LA to bring a lion, tiger, and bear in a studio. And I created these portraits of a lion, tiger, and bear that day. And that I think that was more, that was probably the tipping point of, Okay, I'm. I've created these portraits and I've put them out there. And after that, I got I got some a few ad jobs that were kind of in line with that aesthetic. And then I got a few more ad jobs, and so it kind of just started to snowball a little bit. Mm-hmm. And after I had this kind of collection of maybe twenty or thirty portraits, I was like, you know, this I'm already kind of have a head start. I could turn this into a fine art book project relatively painlessly. This may be getting too technical or legal, but I'm just wondering, like, when you're shooting for clients. How do you facilitate then being able to use the images for your own fine art book project? You know, I mean, is that complicated? Um, it's not complicated, but one thing that we try to put on all of our estimates and invoices is that I have I reserve the the right to use these for self promotion. Yeah, and so I would consider you know a book or a website or fine art kind of self promotion, and and also I don't think any of my clients that have commissioned me 
to photograph these animals would be upset because it's not like I'm licensing these animals to one of their competitors. I mean, these would only be in the book and in, you know, a fine art collection. Yeah. So the purpose are totally different. Whereas, you know, Verizon hired me to photograph some of the exotic animals in the book. If I took those and licensed them to AT&T or even Uh, Apple or whatever, like that could be a conflict of of interest, but because it's not, you know, it's kind of, Mm -hmm. but you still, that is definitely something that you have to be kind of cautious of in the world of licensing imagery and and you know uh, advertising photography yeah sure i really like what you said in your foreword about how for forty thousand years or more we've been depicting animals even in cave paintings and it's just such it's like wow you're part of that long history of uh, documenting and kind of uh, sharing these images of these animals from all over the world i mean it's pretty it's pretty cool yeah it it is and you know as you know i've done some book pr the last couple months um and we haven't really discussed this on anything. So I, I, it's interesting that you brought it up and it was kind of humbling to hear you say it like that. The reason that I include that, included that in my artist statement or forward or author forward is that I heard a talk like a few years ago talking just about the importance of animal um, artwork. And I was just like hmm. blown away. I, I forget who did it, but I was just... I was just blown away that I mean, we have literally been depicting animals since we could make artwork, since we could yeah. paint on the walls of caves for whatever reason, for our dependence, for our fascination with them, for, um, for whatever reason we've yeah. been depicting animals. And it's, it's pretty much across every culture and civilization in history. Animals have been part of artwork that's, that's been created by mm-hmm. that civiliz- civilization or culture. And so, I just found that so fascinating. And when I was thinking about how to put what I was doing down on paper, that felt like like the cornerstone idea of why I'm doing this and why these animal portraits can be important and part of this, part of humanity's portrayal of animals in artwork. Yeah. I mean, I just really love, again, the choice of having them in the studio, isolated on the white or black background, so you can really see them wholly, all the details. I mean, it's just, uh, some of the images are just really amazing. Thank you. And the animals. I mean, like you say in the book, too, it's just like, while we live on this planet with all these creatures that are just unbelievable, that we don't even maybe appreciate as much as we should. For sure. Yeah. And and that's that's one reason why I wanted to take this a step further than just photographing exotic animals. You know, because the idea of photographing exotic animals out in the wild um, or even under controlled settings, you know, is is more of a, a Nat Geo, a National Geographic, or more of like a, um, almost like a photojournalistic yeah. take. Yeah, yeah on animals in the wild. And so I wanted to, yes, I wanted to photograph those, you know, wild and exotic animals that we find so fascinating, but I also wanted to photograph the cows and the chickens and the horses and the goats and the pigs and squirrels pigs and and squirrels and skunks and raccoons (laughs) and all these animals that, that we don't necessarily find fascinating on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. But they're still animals that cohabit the earth earth with us and, you know, and share these resources and are part of the circle of life, not to yeah. be too cheesy. But yeah. so it's, I think that's one thing when, when we talk about, you know, how's, how's this work different than animal work that's been created in the past. And I think that idea that it's, it's a portrait of an animal, whether it's a, just an absolutely stunning, you know, Bengal tiger or whether it's just a raccoon that you would find in your backyard. And that you can showcase a, a soul and a personality in those animals that can hopefully connect with, you know, my audience. Yeah. I wonder what kind of feedback you've gotten from people already. 
the feedback has been, um, it's been really encouraging just in general. What I find very interesting is that a lot of people find different animals that they connect with yeah, different animals. Right. And that's one thing that I thought was so interesting about our depiction of animals throughout history um, or civilization, but also each person's individual preferences towards another animal. Like mm-hmm. someone's like, oh, you know, I, I love squirrels <laughs> or, oh, you know, elephants are my thing or, oh, I love chickens or, you know, I mean, clearly mine are cows. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but um, that idea of that we as humans connect with all these different animals for a multitude of reasons has been very fascinating. I also think that it's interesting the emotions that we apply onto these animals. And I, I, I think that in so many ways, those are emotions that are like within us, that are present within yeah. us. I've had people look at the picture on the cover of this Bengal tiger and some people say, oh, she looks fierce and powerful and others say that she looks sad and lonely. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find that it's pretty interesting that we as humans can apply this dichotomy of emotions on animals mm-hmm. that in my opinion, a lot of those emotions are present within us yeah, and that they're dependent on our outlook and perspective of the world and maybe what we might know or not know about that animal or that animal's past. Did you have any especially emotional moments during any of your shoots that was just like, wow, I'm really in this. This is powerful. This is, I'm exactly where I need to be, where I want to be. Yeah, for sure. Being in a in a studio with with a big cat is one of the most unforgettable experiences that I, I think I'll ever have. Mm. I mean, I, I was in a studio with multiple cats, but well, not all the same, not all at the same time. Right. But I was, you know, being in a studio with a tiger that's from me to you, that's like four feet from me. Yeah. From my camera is just to see an animal like that so close under these studio lights is just a, mm. it's just an unbelievable experience. And I, it was just their grace and their power and their magnificence was just, it's just like tangible. Mm-hmm. And that experience of being close to animals like that is just unbelievable. And just the, the primal energy and just kind of like, I, I just think about people, like we have all these layers of, things that have happened throughout our lives and trauma and kind of hangups and everything. And they're probably just pure instinct and just survival. And they're just totally present more than probably any person could be. I don't know. Does that sound true? Oh, for sure. For sure. And and, uh, yeah, you definitely sensed that primal aspect of these animals when you're just truly in their presence like that. You know, it wasn't, and it wasn't just the exotics, you know, some of the chickens that I photographed have been unbelievably gorgeous yeah oh yeah they are. and and you know you just can appreciate all of these different animals you know in so many different regards and then the horses that i mentioned earlier i just felt this sense of you know intuition and just intelligence that they have specifically with when relating to human beings mm-hmm. you know in the back of the book you have some appreciations of all the people that kind of made this possible And we did talk a little bit about the animal handlers and lovers and the people that take care of these animals and were able to facilitate bringing them to you. Do you have any words about them? I mean, like I mentioned in the back of the book, without these trainers and owners and animal lovers, I wouldn't have been able to facilitate or foster these 
these portraits. Yeah. And that's part of the process is my communication with the animal's owner on what I'm looking for in that shoot. So even though I'm not communicating with the animal, I'm definitely communicating, you know, with, with the person that, that came with that animal. So that was such a big part of the process that I couldn't have done without them. And I, I just have a, a great appreciation for them. And it was also a part of the process that I enjoyed throughout you know, some people, most people have dogs or cats, but some people have sloths or tigers <laughs> and, you know, meeting and getting to know these people was, was a really you know interesting part of the process. And also, you know, kind of experiencing where they came from too. And, you know, some of them, you know, I would find in East Texas or, uh, you know, a barn in Austin as far as the rural animals. And then others I may shoot in like, like I did photograph some animals in the Austin zoo, which okay. is an amazing kind of, you know, unique it's a very unique zoo that um, has, you know, it's, it's almost like a sanctuary. If you've ever been there, it's pretty neat. And on the back of the book, the cheetah came from this big rescue facility in central California um, called Cat Haven. That was also just a really, really, you know, amazing place where they had these massive kind of enclosures with like a hundred year old tree running through it that these like leopards could also like climb up and mm-hmm. um yeah i was going to bring that up because that is one of the charities that benefit from the book yeah so a portion of the proceeds from the book are going to benefit cat haven which is yeah. in dunlap california which is near fresno california mm-hmm. if you're not familiar so um that was neat to include them in the process and it was also what was even cooler about it is that i had photographed their cheetah um, and they had this huge like they actually have a run, like they can let this cheetah get out and run like top speed, 60, 70 miles an hour, <laughs> like chasing after something. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So if you're ever in Dunlap, California, <laughs> find yourself in, in the middle of California, that's a good place. All right. Uh, could you speak at all to just your appreciation of your photo assistants and producers and all that, that also oh, for sure. Yeah. My photo assistants on every job, you know, whether it's for advertising or fine art, like I just couldn't do it without them. And especially because these are all pretty technical photographs, since I'm shooting them in a studio or a studio esque setting, mm-hmm. you know, I've got a background, we've got lights, we've got, I'm shooting everything to a computer. So I'm seeing it all pop up as I'm shooting. So I couldn't, I certainly have to have, you know, a team to help me do this. Uh, and then I had some producers that helped help me source a lot of these animals and help me find a lot of these animals and help me schedule a lot of it. So no pun intended. It was a beast of a project yeah. <laughs> um, that I couldn't have done. And then of course, you know, not every background that I put behind the animal can be perfect in camera. And I try to get it close, but it's not always. So I did work with a great retoucher that helped me make sure that I had a really clean mask or a clean edge on the animals so that I could have the backgrounds all the same. So they're either the exact same tone of gray or the exact same tone of black. Yeah, no, they, they all look beautiful and consistent. Thank and, you. Uh, Peter Williams at Agave, I saw him at the ACC event the other night, and he was saying how technically perfect and beautiful the prints were that oh, he was making. Wow, that's nice of him to say that. Yeah, he's been printing a lot of my stuff. He does a great job. Yeah, and that is one thing I wanted to mention at some point is that he was printing your work for your upcoming show at Davis Gallery here in Austin. Yes, what are the what are the details on that? So I I have a gallery show on December sixth at the Davis Gallery, and I'll have over twenty five large format pieces that will be on display there. Yeah, and I think they'll be up for a little less than a week. So if you can't make it on the sixth, then it'll 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 be up for a week. But I hope that's a chance to see the work large format and in person because I think you, you know you can see the work online and then you see it in the book, and I think it's clear in the book on the technical aspects of the work. 
you know, there's a, they're very, very rich in detail. And then taking it one step further, I'm looking forward to being able to show the work large format printed. Mm-hmm. I think that's when you can really see that kind of my background and interest in studio photography has helped me create these, you know, works that are very technically sound. Yeah. Throughout your career as a photographer, have you always had aspirations to maybe be in an art gallery? I mean, how do you think about like, there's like the fine art photography world, there's like the advertising photography world. I mean, is it all just mashed together now? I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if it matters that there's, you know, any kind of a difference. That's a good question. There, there definitely is. It definitely seems to be two different worlds, not seems, it definitely is two different worlds that I'm sort of feel like I'm kind of straddling and trying mm-hmm. to balance right now. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to, to be in galleries, but my core business of being an advertising photographer is, you know, what I've always done and, you know, I'll probably continue to do. So, you know, it's, it's definitely going to be an exciting chance to showcase the work in person, but it definitely feels like I'm kind of straddling, a, you know, yeah. a, a, a weird line here. So you've got your like artistic side and you have your business side. Right. Kind of, you know, how does, how do those work together? Well, I mean, well, the other thing about real quick, the other thing about fine art, versus the advertising career is you got to be kind of cautious as an advertising photographer because you can get labeled as an advertising photographer when you do, especially a project of this scale and of this, you know, tight from an aesthetics perspective, it's very cohesively tight. Yeah. And because of that, showcasing that on my advertising portfolio website is, is a little tricky because I can get pinned as, oh, that's the guy that did an animal book. Even oh, though okay. the, primarily my work on, in that world is is in the world of you know of people or lifestyle type photography, yeah. So it, that's it's definitely a tricky line to balance. Um, to answer your question about business and art, and that's that's definitely a tricky line to balance as well for any artist, whether you're a photographer, or a painter, or whatever. You know, because of my background and having a business degree, I definitely have a propensity of being a business person, maybe just a smidge before I'm an artist, it's kind of a, a, a pendulum that swings back and forth that as someone who makes his career, makes a living from art, I have got to constantly be balancing and trying to keep in check. And so that's definitely something that I'm kind of constantly trying to be aware of. You know, I'm sure many artists are. Yeah, I think that's a, a struggle for a lot of artists is the business side, promotion, self-promotion, writing about yourself, talking about your work, marketing yourself. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts or advice generally for artists that struggle with that kind of thing? For sure. I think it goes back to just being prepared to put yourself out there and market yourself Mm -hmm. because you and your art, if you can't market yourself, even if that's just to a gallery, if you can't market yourself, then you're not going to be able to make a career out of, out of this. So you absolutely have to be able to, I mean, it all comes down to kind of marketing, I guess, as I've kind of straddled this line between being an advertising photographer and a fine art photographer, I've met a lot of uh, fine artists, some some photographers and some more traditional artists, whether it's paint or mixed media. And it's so funny, without fail, every one of these guys that I've spoken with that have been real successful, they are fantastic business people. Mm. This painter that I, I know, he is a very talented painter. But when you meet him, you're like, oh, okay, I get it now because yeah. he can sell his work. And being an advertising photographer, you've got to be able to market yourself and sell your work. But I think as a fine art photographer or a fine artist, I think it's even more important that you're able to sell your work because 
the narrative that you wrap up and then you incorporate into your artwork is just as important as the artwork itself. And you've got to be able to communicate that narrative to your audience to tie in what's behind your artwork and what's what you're putting out into the world and why you're putting out that yeah. out into the world. Yeah, to be able to tell the story of you and your work and exactly why anyone would care or exactly. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of stories, in the index of your book, there are stories attributed to each animal. And you, I think you had help with that, right? I did. Um, in the start of this project, I had jot, jotted down kind of little notes on every, on every animal. And, you know, there were some stories that were just were, un, were unforgettable, too. As this project surfaced and as it developed, I wanted these stories to be part of a chance to further anthropomorphize these animals. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wrote a shell of a story about each animal of my experience. And then I worked with my uh, good friend and artist, Jared Dunton, who's an artist here in Austin. He's also a copywriter. And so I worked with him to kind of try to refine these stories and to make them maybe a little bit more entertaining, but also to help further this idea of, you know, portraying or heroicizing these animals and making them a portrait that someone can relate with. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm certainly grateful to Jared Dutton for his help, uh, helping me craft and refine these stories. You know, the stories are, you know, not only showcase showing, my experience with that animal, but it's also a chance to, you know, showcase their, their name too. And that's another thing about this whole project is all of these animals have names and that's a big part of portraying them. And sort of, it's almost like you're, you're almost using like the stories and the names and the lighting and the pose, like all these aspects to create this portrayal for your audience so that they speak to your audience. So they can relate to it. So they can relate to it, yeah. Yeah, it seems like, I guess the thought that I just had was that sometimes you think of an artist as being kind of like just the sole person who's like in their studio, they're creating, and they're just kind of on their own, and they're trying to do it all on their own. And it sounds like, you know, you've had to do a lot of creative collaboration and bring in a lot of people and a lot of help and people to maybe work on things that maybe you don't have as much skill at and it's like you're good at one thing and it's like oh I need someone who is a writer or or a different perspective or I need help with this or that I mean how do you think about collaboration and kind of drawing on other people's talents to kind of help build what you're doing for sure well I think it's 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 such a big part of being an advertising photographer on every shoot it's a huge collaboration yeah you know on my end I've got photo assistants and I've got producers and I've got stylists and I've got this whole crew and retouchers this whole crew of people that I'm freelancers that I'm collaborating with and working with to bring this project and campaign to life. And then the client has, you know, the advertising agency and all of their team and their creatives that I'm interfacing with and collaborating with. And that's one of the aspects that I love most about what I do is collaborating with this team of of amazing creative people. And so when I you know, stepped out to do this project of animal portraits, it was kind of a natural, it was natural for me to collaborate with people and to work with, you know, some of my producers and to work with my photo assistants and to work with the trainers, you know, and my retoucher. So the whole idea of, you know, collaboration is kind of a, a really important piece of my work as a fine artist, but also as an advertising photographer. Mm-hmm. So those definitely like intertwine really they, they definitely uh, mix well. That makes me think of a question that's kind of a little bit more 
selfish for myself, but it's like I've always been the kind of shooter that's I'm out on my own. I'm shooting on my own. And it really intimidates me thinking about being the head of some huge production with all these people <laughs> and gears turning and everything. Like, what's that like? I mean, did you did you ever have fear about all that? Did you figure out a way to overcome that at some point for you know, sure it's like having so oh, yeah. much responsibility you know it is for sure so when i first got into advertising photography doing a big commercial shoot and i just sort of it was a matter of maybe it was a matter of luck it was a matter of preparation all these little things happen but i found myself on these big advertising shoots maybe a little bit too soon in my <laughs> career and so it was sort of this idea of having to be just go out there and like fake it till you make it and just kind of like deal with this pressure, even if I didn't, wasn't prepared for it. And so when I first got into advertising photography, it was definitely like, I definitely felt the pressure of being the director of this sort of big machine that was happening. Mm -hmm. And I used to get, I used to get nervous before shoots and whatnot, but I've done it so long now that I, I, I don't really get nervous anymore before these big shoots, but I also know what I need to do to ensure that I'm not nervous. Because if I am nervous, that probably means that I'm not prepared or haven't done, you know, my my due diligence to be ready for this shoot. You know, I, I think just being prepared is a way to kind of attack that fear. If that's something that you end up kind of getting into these bigger shoots with bigger productions is just being being kind of prepared and ready, but also trusting, trusting yourself and trusting that these people hired you for a reason. And that was, that was something that I had to tell my young Mm. self as a photographer when I was starting out. And I was, I was really young. I mean, I was like 25, 26. And I was on these, some of these really big ad shoots. And I kind of had to remind myself, I'm like, they hired me for a reason. I just need to be me. Yeah. And I need to just, it's like, I knew what to do. It's just, just, trusting yourself and trusting the process and trusting the collaboration. And when you're collaborating with this big group of people, that's the great thing about a collaboration is everyone is there to help each other and everyone is there to further the nature of this project. Yeah. Everyone wants to win, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm wondering, I think maybe we could finish touching on some points that you made the other night at a talk you did about your new book at the ACC photography department. You had some bullet points, and I just I think some of them are pretty obvious, but I thought maybe if we need to elaborate on any of them, sure. Um, you say be obsessed is the first <laughs> one. Like, how do you? Where does your obsession for being a photographer or doing a good job or paying attention to the details like where does that come from? Do you think it comes? I think it comes from an unhealthy obsession about everything. <laughs> <laughs> My the natural tendency for OCD and just. Uh, But no, seriously, I was, when I look back, you know, when I was just getting into the business, I was so in love and I was so obsessed with photography and what I was doing. And that, that just burning desire, like Mm. fueled my career and fueled my creativity. And without that, you know, this business and this art is, is a challenging world to attack. And so it's like, if you don't have this kind of relentless obsession and passion for what you're doing, it's easy to just fall by the wayside and it's easy to just like let things go. Mm -hmm. And I I just was lucky that I I had that obsession, but just being obsessed in in a, hopefully in a healthy way that, (laughs) you know, can, can further what you're doing. Second bullet point, mentors and coaches. Yeah, I mentioned earlier in our talk that, you know, that Marty and Adam Butler were mentors of mine when I first got into the business and still are, um, you know, and I I saw I have a mentor uh, or had a mentor at the Richards Group that was helped kind of guide me. And I I just think it's really important to sort of tap into those that have gone before you 
um, mm-hmm. that may be interested in you know paying it forward and helping you out and helping you find your path. I'm a big believer that we can't, we don't all, especially when you're just getting started, when you're young, you don't have it all figured out. And I, I mean, well, let me, let me say that again. I don't feel like we ever have it all figured out. And as soon as you do, I think that's a recipe for disaster. Staying and I, humble, right? <laughs> staying humble. And I still, to this day, I still have mentors and, you know, like a mentor or a coach or whatever you want to call it that you rely on, that you can trust, that you can kind of bounce ideas off of and that can help you grow. And I believe that that a lot of people that have gone before us are, you know, willing, willing and able to help, but also want to help, you know, a younger generation yeah. or someone that's up and coming or someone that's making a diversion in their business. Have you found yourself in that role for someone else? Yeah, for other photographers I have. Mm. And it's something that I've really loved doing and I've really enjoyed doing because it's something that I'm you know, this, this business of being an, an artist and a photographer is something that I'm passionate about and I want to share that passion. Um, and if I could help somebody that's trying to find their way, then, then that's, that's great. That kind of, that kind of fuels me as well. Yeah. Yeah. You say shoot 10,000 hours. So it's like, <laughs> shoot a lot, <laughs> shoot a ton. Yeah. The 10,000 hours things come, thing comes from Malcolm Gladwell's, yeah. uh, outliers book. When I read that, I was like, Oh, this makes total sense that in order to be a photographer, you just need to shoot a ton of, a ton of work. And that, a photographer or an artist, I'm sure it's the same for a painter, yeah. is that you, you need to just create a ton of work to find your voice, to find your vision. And that, that by shooting a ton, that has helped me refine and evolve and find who I am as a photographer. Yeah, that's probably why you, probably deep down early on in your advertising shoots, you knew you could accomplish the goal, even though you were nervous about the immensity of the production, because you had shot so much and you probably knew that you had the skills. Yeah, I definitely felt like I had the skills. It was in those first few shoots, it was it was more of the <laughs> more of the people skills that I've yeah, got. Oh, like yeah. 30, 40 people <laughs> around me that are like asking me to make a decision on something. <laughs> yeah, you're the man. Uh, have a vision. Yeah, I, Earlier in our discussion, I mentioned that I knew that I wanted to be a conceptual portrait advertising photographer. I mean, that's a really, that's a really like, you know, special niche and having an idea of where you want to go, whether you're an artist, whether you're a photographer, whether you're in any other business, um, in anything in life, I feel like if you have a vision on or clarity on where you want to go, then it's, it's so much easier to get there. I mean, without a vision, it's like a, without clarity on what you want, it's impossible to get there. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of photographers, a lot of artists, a lot of, you know, maybe musicians too, that may get stuck is that they don't have clarity on what they are trying to, to do. Yeah. I wonder if you could also get kind of stuck too much in your literal, literal idea of a vision and not be able to kind of adjust that as you go. I mean, have you had to kind of do that? Absolutely. That's a, that's a fantastic point because as a photographer, you can look at any photographer's career. And if you, if you're not, if you don't evolve throughout your career, then you, you can become irrelevant really quickly. Yeah. And so I'm sure it's the same with, you know, a musician or a painter or another business. I mean, you know, we can think about, you know, I mean, how many businesses out there that are like every 10 years, you're like, oh, they're doing something totally different. Yeah. Um, or just making these little tweaks and fine tuning and, you know, evolving. And that's where going back to shooting is becomes so important. Is this like, if you're shooting a lot, 
you're naturally evolving. So if you're shooting a lot, if you're creating a lot of artwork, if you're writing a lot, you're just naturally evolving. And that process of evolution comes a lot easier. But if you're trying to force evolution, then it's not as, it's not as easy. It's not as, you know, authentic or natural. It doesn't come as natural. So do the work. That's a theme I've heard from a lot of other artists I've interviewed. Just do the work. (laughs) Do the work and just put yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Blend art and commerce. What does that mean to you? For sure. I I mean, the importance of being able to be a business person and an artist at the same time cannot be understated because without one or the other, you can't be an artist. You can't be a, a working artist. You know, in some regards, if you're too much of an artist where all you want to do is put your head down and paint all day, but you really hate the idea of marketing yourself, then that can be problematic. On the flip side, if if you love the business part too much, if you love the marketing aspect too much, but you're not creating enough artwork, that can be problematic. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. it's really, a, you know, a, um, a, a vital blend of art and commerce. And that if you can't, if you can't keep those in check and those balanced, then, you know, it, it could cause trouble or hinder success. Yeah. Uh, and you had three more bullet points. And this one we just spoke to be prepared to constantly evolve. Yeah. <laughs> you just spoke to that. Yeah, totally. Being just being ready to keep moving. Be prepared to create a lot of content. Yeah. And that goes, that that goes, I I think that's more of the nature of where photography, advertising artwork as well has shifted in the last 10 years because of social media and online presence. And there's just an insatiable appetite for, for content. Um, Whether you're a brand that's marketing, whether, you know, whether it's Coke marketing their products or whether it's, you know, GSD and M marketing their clients products or whether it's, you know, a painter or a musician, the ability to consume content at such a fast rate is in our fingertips, literally with our iPhone. So whether it's, you know, rifling through books or podcasts or music or photographs on Instagram or videos um, on YouTube, it's like, there's never been a greater need for content, but at the same time, that's a very challenging, it, it can be very challenging to produce enough content across enough platforms. And compete with everyone else that's right. creating content. Right, right. And again, like we spoke to your last uh, bullet point, be prepared to market yourself. Yeah. One of the books that I read after I graduated school was uh, Purple Cow Marketing by Seth Godin. Yeah, I like Seth. Yeah, he's great. And I just, I'd like to go back and actually reread that one. But that was one of my favorite books that I read. And just the concept of being prepared to create something remarkable, but also ready to market that work is is really important. Do you have any other books that you like about art, creativity, photography? Well, certainly... You know, if you if you're not other than yours, <laughs> other than the Animal Kingdom by Randall Ford, available at booksellers everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, uh, the you know I've mentioned my love for Richard Avedon here mm. in this podcast, and I'm sure a lot of your audience is familiar with Richard Avedon. I, I hope they are. But in the American West is probably my favorite kind of mm. coffee table book yeah. that that I've had, and, and his portrait work is just so beautiful and simple but sophisticated. And then on some of the business books. I think Seth Godin's Purple Cow is just fantastic. Um, Seth Godin also writes another book called The Dip, mm-hmm. which I think is a really fascinating read about you know becoming a business and developing a brand. Yeah, he's a great person to follow to kind of get a contrarian perspective on a lot of things that kind of will make you think out of the box. Definitely. And I think he's a great pers- person for artists to follow as yeah. well, um, because he kind of helps you step out of the box and, and think about things from a little bit different perspective. Yeah. He's not paying me to say this, but I've heard great things about he's got a, I think it's called like Alt MBA or something. Yeah, he's got yeah. some like online 
kind of alternative MBA program that I've heard really cool things about. Yeah. So I think that could be an interesting thing to do, an interesting, interesting thing for artists to do. Well, he's got a great podcast called Akimbo that I listen to. And oh, I've nice. a lot out of that. Um, nice. I'll have really to check good. that out. Yeah. yeah, he's he's fantastic. Okay. Well, um, maybe to wind this up, I have this one final question that isn't exactly about photography or art necessarily, but you know, I'm just I'm thinking about like you have a family, you have a wife and three kids, right? How do they factor into kind of your inspiration for what you do? And then maybe kind of finally, if you had to impart some kind of truth or wisdom about life to your kids, like that they could take on with them, you know, like if you weren't going to be around, like, what do you what do you think would be most important to share with them about like, what's important? I know it's kind of heavy. It's a heavy question. <laughs> I just feel well, like it gets to the core of something. It does. It know? does. It does. It for sure does. So, I mean, having a family definitely creates no shortage of, and there's no shortage of, of inspiration to work hard yeah. and to create work um, and to provide for them and help provide a living for them to put food on the table and whatnot. Um, at the same time, it also provides, I mean, it also, you know, there's also a lot of pressure as well. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I have to be prepared to handle that pressure and to put it also in perspective and that, you know, family is, is, is the most important thing in the world and that I'm blessed that I'm able to do something that I love and that I enjoy that can provide for my family. Um, but to answer your question about what I would like to leave for my kids on what's important. I think that, you know, it all comes down to the Beatles. All you need is love. Yeah. (laughs) And that we are hardwired for connection and hardwired for a family and for love and for friendship and relationships. I think to tie it back to this animal fine art project, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about some of our core basis is of being human and that mm-hmm. we require sort of a tribe and love and relationships and experience in a lot of regards. I think a lot of animals do as well. You know, we certainly see that on an observational level, but then I try to use, I guess I want to use these animal photographs so that people connect with these animals and maybe it's an additional connection, connecting with nature, I guess. Yeah. Cause I think we do have a fundamental or a primal instinct to connect with nature. Maybe in a little way, these animal portraits are allowing people to connect with nature in a way that they might not have otherwise. Yeah. I have no doubt. It's a beautiful book. Um, Thank you. So are there any events other than the Davis gallery uh, opening that you'd like to mention? Sure. So on November 15th in Dallas, uh, I'm doing a a gallery show at Photographs Do Not Bend Gallery, a PDNB gallery. That's a photography gallery that's been around for a while. And then on December 6th, I'm doing a show at the Davis Gallery. Yeah. And RandallFord.com. And RandallFord.com. Yeah. And then there's also RandallFord.art. Yeah. So I I separated both sites to have some separation between, yeah. you know, your fine art and your, you know, advertising work. And so randallford.com, randallford.art, both with one L. I'm, right. I've, I think I'm the only Randall on the planet that has one L. <laughs> if there's another Randall listening with one L, R-A-N-D-A-L, please, please send me an email so I know I'm yeah. not alone. <laughs> yeah, right. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Randall. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. Really enjoyed it. Me too. Okay. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. 
There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Thank you.